I was sitting in a bar here in the neighborhood the other night, and there was a guy sitting on the other end of the bar. He was loud. I could hear him all the way across the room. He seemed like he was putting on a show for everybody, and he wasn't feeling any pain. But somebody walked up to him and asked him, said, hey, man, do you party? He says, dude, I party harder than a Canadian mayor. And I just about fell out of my chair laughing. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. I got my cat baby on my lap and it's a cold, cold morning. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is David Olney. David is a singer and a songwriter, and his songs have been recorded by people like Emmylou Harris, Steve Earle, Johnny Cash, Linda Ronstadt, and a whole lot of other folks. You can find out everything you need to know about David at davidolney.com. I stumbled across this quote, and I wanted to share it with you guys. This is Towns Van Zant talking about David Olney. Does anytime anyone asks me who my favorite music writers are, I say Mozart, Lightning Hopkins, Bob Dylan, and Dave Olney. Dave Olney is one of the best songwriters I've ever heard, and that's true. I mean that from my heart. That's a quote from Towns Van Zant, and what songwriter wouldn't give their left arm to have Towns say something like that about them? David invited me into his kitchen in Nashville. And we sat there, and he's the kind of guy that speaks directly and doesn't mix words, and he's honest with you. And I feel like he really opened up, and I appreciate that. And if you hear a pounding at any point, it's because David would get animated and he would pound his fist against the kitchen table. So if you hear that in the background, you'll know what that is. But here's my conversation with David Olney. Um, I was born in Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode Island, and moved to Lincoln, Rhode Island when I was one, and lived there until I was uh, 16, 15, and then we moved to uh, Needham, Massachusetts, a real hellhole, and then I went down to go to school in uh, North Carolina which for me, that's where my mom's family was from. So it was, it wasn't this exotic place. You know, we'd go visit there. So I was familiar with it somewhat. Um, But anyway, when I went down there, that was getting set free for me. I pretty much in some way hit a dead end in New England, it seemed like to me. And now I had this whole new landscape where I could do whatever I was going to do, which at the time was, you know, drop out of school and, and wreck cars. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, it was the start of this long process of becoming a songwriter, I would say. Or, and, and accompanying that was just 
becoming whatever I am right now, you know, as an adult. I think <laughs> of North Carolina and even Rhode Island. Those are big, like, wrestling areas, like pro wrestling. Was yeah. It, were you a wrestling fan at all? As in Rhode Island, yeah. Killer Kowalski, Argentina Rocca, uh, Haystack Calhoun. But the big, the big guy, everything seemed to revolve around Killer, Killer Kowalski. And he had the claw hold. And if he was a, if you, if he was able to get in the position to actually put the claw hold on you, it was over. It was done. And it seemed he grabs you somewhere in your stomach, but it caused you first it caused you great pain, and then it made you go to sleep. <laughs> I met Towns Van Zandt in 1973, I think in January, and I was living in Atlanta, but I got a gig opening for Towns at a place called The Last Resort in Athens, uh, Georgia, and I had never heard of Towns. You know, I was really glad to have the gig, you know, it was a, it was a really nice club. A woman named Patty Champion ran it. Anyway, uh, you know, I'm go up there to do sound check or whatever. And this guy walks in, and I remember he was a cowboy. He had a big old cowboy hat. And I think he had kind of a Western-cut jacket on. And then he had these white uh, cowboy boots. Just the most peculiar-looking person. And I didn't, you know, didn't think much about it. And, and that night I played my set, and then he played... And he was playing Poncho and Lefty, all the, the songs that just, you know, riveted me. And it was just this, you know, life-changing experience. To me, it was like, I think at that time, I had just been a folk singer. I'd written a couple of songs, but mostly I just did old folk songs. And if I was going, you know, thinking about writing songs, at that time, for me, there was really on there was Bob Dylan, and suddenly Towns did his songs, and there was a whole another, you know, pathway that you could go. That were his songs seemed to me that they were based as Bob Dylan's were, but T Towns even more strongly in the folk tradition, and just the 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 poetry of them. It simultaneously gave me another way I could another path I could go. But it also raised the ante. It raised the bar. They, I've got to kind of go for writing something as good as that. I remember just a friend of mine somehow got a tape of the show and just listening to it over and over. And still, Poncho and Lefty, all of them, but Poncho and Lefty, is, that was the one that really went, how did he do that? You know, how is the song is so rich and 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 uh, in detail, still is an amazing song to me. I came to Nashville that following May and very quickly got to know this guy, Richard Dobson, and we became friends and we were playing down at Bishop's Pub, which is now the Tin Angel, and it was a past-the-hat place. And uh, Richard said, well, I'm going down to Houston to play a gig. Come on down, we'll split the bill. I said, great, and, and we went down, and it turned out the Towns was there. The gig was at the Old Quarter in Houston, and I'm so I got to see Towns play there and uh, and then got to hang out with him a little bit. 
where we were staying. And at some point, I, I had written this song called Illegal Cargo, and I played it for him. And uh, he said, that's really good. You know, he really liked the song, which I thought he was just being kind. But later on, a, a guy in Ireland gave me a tape of, of, a, of Towns playing live, and he played Illegal Cargo. And it was, oh, it was, God, man, it was so great. Stuff like that can really, this is a hard way to go. Try, you know, it's, and especially back then, there was no internet where you could make contact with people that, were, that might be interested or like what you're doing. It was just going out in the wilderness and trying to find people, you know. And to have somebody like Towns who would, have, you know, made it in a, in a way, uh, take an interest in your song was just a, a huge deal. And it just counterbalanced the amount of humiliation and shit sandwiches that you had to eat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the next time a publisher gave me the great big blank stare, you know, and reminded me where the door was, <laughs> I could think in my head, yeah, well, Towns is doing illegal cargo. How about that, motherfucker? You know? <laughs> Uh, guy, when I came to town, he was either just finishing recording or it was just coming out of all number one. And, and that was, here was a guy that you could run into and did, I would run into him. He lived very close to Bishop's Pub, he and Susanna at that time. So it was, a, a, it was an accessible person. And he had a record out. And having a record out was this huge thing back then. It, it just involved, you know, climbing Mount Everest and, you know, really a difficult thing to get a record deal. And, and he was one of us, and he'd gotten one. And that was, that's a really <clears throat> milestone recording, I would say. And, there, you know, you could talk to the guy. Hey, guy, how you doing? Hey, Dave. Wow, he knows my name, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw him was at Bishop's Pub, which at that time was a bar in front tables and then in the back there was a couple of pool tables he was back there playing pool and clearly you know three sheets of the wind you know on a big cowboy hat and he's you know he's to me he was like eight feet tall and there was a fluorescent light over the pool table and he had a stick and he was you know and i'm kind of wow that's got clark and at some point he did a stick like that and it hit the the light over the table and just shattered the bulb and it, just, and it fell on the, and he was just about to shoot the eight ball. And when he did this and boom, it's all this crap all over the table, shards, shards of glass. He just kind of looks at it and then lines up his shot, you know, and the, the cue ball goes dunk, 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 over these pieces of glass and hits, hits the eight ball and the eight ball goes dunk, 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 the boom. And like goes in and I went, Whoa! <laughs> there are giants among us. <laughs> I wanted to expand what it was I was doing beyond just uh, being a guy that plays a guitar and gets up there and sings. <clears throat> I wanted to try playing with a band, so I thought that it was going to be kind of a alternate country band. And so I had, you know, got a drummer, 
bass player, a fiddle player, and a guitar player. But as it turned out, there was no way I could rehearse with them all at once. So I, I went to each individual person and played the songs I wanted to do, so they all, you know, they'd be familiar with it. It's a strange way to do it, but that's how it had to be. <laughs> and got a gig, and it was a pl- at a place called Rock Harbor. Uh, we go out there, and this is the first time I played with a band, and it was this very funky place with this, but it had a nice stage. And the guy that lived out there had these dogs, and we went out there early to do sound check and set up and go through the songs one time because it, you know so we could all hear it what was going on uh, and do that. And now the people are coming in, and it's we're going to do this show. And this guy, like I say, had these dogs, and one of the dogs had shit on the stage. And so I get out there and start the first song and realize I stepped in dog shit. <laughs> and I get about, you know, eight bars and I just, whoa, what's that? And went, ah, oh, and just said, stop. This is not the way I'm going to do this. You know, the first song I do with a band is not going to be, we got to clean this up. So we did that and then played. And then over the course of the night, something happened. As soon as I, we played something that had a beat to it, I was just kind of, jumping up and down and it was you know it released the beast and uh the fiddle player i think got a bit irritated so he quit immediately afterwards and and i saw that it was it wasn't a country band it was going to be a rock and roll band so that was the beginning of the x-rays and that would be around 1976 or 7 and we played and various people went in out of the band and then in 1980 got a certain group of people, Tommy Goldsmith, Rick Rowell on drums, uh, John Owen on bass, and Kenny Moore on keyboards. And we hooked up with, through Bobby Cudd with Don Light Talent. It was a management thing. And through them, and also we got a, we got a deal with uh, Rounder Records, which was huge to me. And that's what was set up so that uh, Austin City Limits would be interested in having us play. and I, So I'm, I'm thinking that it mostly went kind of through Rounder because the guy that we were playing with was George Thorogood, was, and he was playing that, that on that show and us, and he was the main guy. Did you interact with George Thorogood on that day Just very to much? say hi. I remember okay. him being a pretty nice fellow, but you know, I was very nervous, and you know, we we had been sort of road hardened, so there wasn't any worry about forgetting the songs, that kind of stuff. It was just a matter of relaxing enough to to uh, do it right, and it was. I think we gave a pretty good show. I know I got pretty loaded after uh, after we finished, so it's kind of gone into the black and white <laughs> memory bin. Have you watched it on YouTube since then? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I've, I've seen it. Those things are difficult. You know, I look at it and say, okay, we did a good show, but you're looking at yourself as a young man. That's not going to come back. I don't know. I just, I don't want to start dwelling on that, like to think there's some shard of future that's still in front of me, you know, that some new song, some new wrinkle. When the x-rays split up, 
which was just in the natural course of things. It was time to move on to something else. You know, you wait two years, it's like two beats, and then someone wants you to do a reunion gig. And we did one of them, and it was just so uncomfortable to me. I just, I swore I would not do that, go stop and go back and do what you did some, some years before. It's, you know, move on. He recorded it, but he did not uh, release it. He did a version of Jerusalem Tomorrow, and I'm just hoping that sometime in the future he'll put that out because that would be a killer version, just that voice doing that recitation. Did you ever get to meet Johnny Cash? I met him in New York, and it was I was opening for uh, his wife, June, June Carter Cash, and she had just put out a, a CD, and it was at the bottom line. And I opened, and, you know, June was just very sweet and kind. And after I finished, it was in between the little space of time before she was going to go on, and she went out of her way to come up and say, oh, I really enjoyed your set. You know, I'm going, well, thank you very much. She said, and um, I don't know if you've met my husband, Johnny Cash. And I just turned there, and it was like, it's like Mount Rushmore, you know, just <laughs> and he and he said he put his hand on and said, "Hello, I'm Johnny Cash." I'm like, "I'm shrinking." <laughs> I mean, it was that was amazing. <laughs> there's there's just some people that uh, just have so much presence, and you know, I'd like to think I'm not all that impressed with other people's fame and glory, but Johnny Cash, man, that's that's a big one. I think I met her at a party or something years before, but it wasn't anything that would have registered with her. Uh, but she was recording Cowgirl's Prayer. I, this is what I was told afterwards, that she was not happy com- with how it was coming out. And was looking for some other songs to record. Okay, through Kevin Welch, who really liked the song Jerusalem Tomorrow, he got that to um, Karen Kane. And Karen was good friends with Emmy Lou, and he knew that she was looking for more songs. So he put some more songs of his together. And just because he liked the song, he put Jerusalem Tomorrow on there. And this is like, who does this? You know, it's, it's not going to do anything for him. It did everything for me. And she, she heard the song and went, yeah, she's going to do it. That was huge to me. I guess I'd had a couple of other cuts, but that one clearly was something to put me on the map. And then through that, she evidently got a hold of the uh, CD Deeper Well. And from that, she heard women across the river and she didn't record it herself but she sent it women across the river to uh linda ronstadt and it wasn't the height of linda ronstadt's career but it was linda ronstadt and and, and she did the song this, this really great version of it and then uh maybe a year or two later emmy lou and linda are gonna do a recording together and they do a song not uh, from through a glass darkly called 1917 about World War One 
a World War I soldier's encounter with a, a woman in Paris. And so they did that. And then about a year after that, I get a call that uh, Amy Lou wants to do Deeper Well. And uh, I said, yeah, great. And then I get another call. She says, look, we're having trouble getting this. Would it be okay if I wrote some verses that are more from a woman's point of view? And yeah, you know, which is, I've had it come up where someone would say, oh, we'd like to change it a little bit. And you know that you're going to lose is the publishing, the, the business side of it. But it's just the idea that someone can come in and change a couple of words and act like, well, this was a different deal. And I said, yeah, I'd be honored if you would. So uh, she and Daniel Lanoir wrote some verses to Deeper Well, and, you know, they recorded it on Wrecking Ball, which was, to me, that I don't know how many copies it sold, but that was a major uh, recording, very influential recording. I was lucky to be on it. And it was extremely courageous on her part to do that. I mean, you know, forget about the country songstress, you know, label that she had, you know, that was a very on the edge production. And she sings in a different way, really stretches uh, her voice, I think, in the lower ranges. And it was, you know, I was lucky to get that one. So Amy Lou <clears throat> really helped me out a whole bunch, huge. There are these people like Amy Lou Harris, Bonnie Raitt, I don't know who in the male category, the deal that they do was find great songs, and they do them. And they're not constantly writing their own songs. And that really makes keeps the game honest to me. And if there was more people, I mean, that's what Billie Holiday did. That's what Frank Sinatra did. And it, it's they act as kind of a warehouse for, for good songs. And it keeps, I don't know, it, it, it makes things better and... Uh, it certainly helped me out a whole lot. Besides being, you know, a great guitar player and an extremely honorable person, uh, Sergio Webb is like, he's the guy, the, the picture of towns and on the porch, the other guy may end up being Sergio. It's like he's just been in, in positioned in certain places as the guitar player. You know, where he's just, he, he's he got a lot of information. He's one of my favorite people. Yeah, he's an amazing person. He's put up with a huge amount from me on the road. And just, you know, the difficulties of being on the road. And the guy's a, a real warrior. It's been a privilege serving with him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, it's not particular gigs where someone throws a tomato or they're, you know, something blows up it's what really wears you out is when they're strung together just gigs where no one seems to care that you know there's 10 people out there they're drunk the pa is blowing up you know the sound guy's a junkie or you know this and they just get strung together and you just go why am i doing this you know and then you get you get to some place where you play a good gig you went oh yeah there it is there it is Especially early on, you're so vulnerable. You can be hurt so easily. You know, your feelings are, you kind of, one of the, you have to get, you know, 
alligator skin pretty quickly to go out and do this stuff because it can it can eat you up. You know, one night can you know bad night can just really send you into into a tailspin. You've got to be able to put it behind you pretty quickly. I played a bunch of gigs opening for Melissa Etheridge in 1989, and she was just becoming a big star. And she was on tour, and they wanted an opening act. I, and I, she played at the Bluebird before becoming big, and I happened to get the gig of opening for her. And I think she really liked that song, Women Across the River. And through that, I got this, and through Bobby Cudd, booking, I got this thing of a month's worth of gigs opening for Melissa Etheridge. And her fans were just totally ardent. You know, they were crazy about her. And these were places that were like 3,000 seat places, the best places I'd ever played. And pretty much without exception, they didn't like me. Oh. And they not, they, they, they didn't, that's too strong. It wasn't that they didn't like me, but they had no opinion about me, and they weren't there to, to hear me. You know, I was just sort of, I think you're sort of there to kind of so the sound man can make sure everything works. And they would, you know, there's just a thunderous indifference to what I was doing. And, you know, I had to, like, go, don't take this personally. You know, just do, do your gig, get the money, you know, do your job. And I did. <clears throat> but I would meet people later on, and they'd say, oh, yeah, I saw you years ago opening for uh, Melissa Etheridge. I said, where did you see us? And one saying, oh, I saw you in Detroit. I said, I remember that gig. It was Bedlam. There was, it was like this huge run. I said, no, no, I, I, was, I was there, and uh, I, I really liked it. And I went, you know, this is unbelievable to me. But then you go... You can never hear a person listening. You can only hear them when they don't listen, you know. <laughs> but you've got to assume that that they're out there somewhere in this, you know, awful gig that you might be playing. There's someone out there getting every word you say, and, and you know, and you, you've got to. It's like a religious thing that you you can't prove that they're there, but they're there, and you have to go on that assumption. Well, if you don't have it, then you just get your ass beat. Like a drum, you know? <laughs> Along those lines, we live in pretty amazing times where you're able to connect directly to people who do like your music and they're able to, to participate in your career. I think, yeah. I think right now you're running a crowdsourcing campaign. Yeah, Kickstarter campaign. And people out there listening, it's go to davidonly.com and you'll receive directions on how to give me money. <clears throat> and this is an amazing experience to do this. When, when I first heard about it, and one of the people I you know, checked out was your, you did it, and I've checked out what, how you went about it. And it just seemed like, in a way, you're just saying, I'm going to do a CD. You were going to buy it. I'm asking you to buy it now. So it's, it's not... Uh, you know, st straight up panhandling, but it's it still is a much more direct way of dealing with people to get funding for for a, a project, and it's can be uncomfortable and a bit awkward. But 
<clears throat> for me, that's probably a good thing because my my inclination would be uh, to write songs and not worry about the getting my hands dirty with ugly money matters and you know sort of shift that off to someone else to do that nasty work and I think it's just part of the job now and you just gotta get your mind right and go out and and make your pitch as straightforward as you can people aren't stupid you know they know what what you're up against and I think for the most part you know they they like to help out I'm hoping that's the way it is and you know but it definitely is a shift from the old paradigm of uh, how things used to work and the old way isn't going to come back so this is how this is how this dance goes so davidonly.com and uh, be generous and thank you very much <laughs> I've heard you say once before I think there's a lot of wisdom in this, but the mainstream isn't interested in guys like us. But that's good because yeah. we never really liked the mainstream. Oh, anyway. yeah. They're talking about fans. You know, a, a fan that, and how I, you know, have an ambivalent sort of attitude toward them. But one I, I'm not ambivalent about is when you play a gig and there's not that many people there and someone is sitting there and, Quite often, they have never heard of you. They just happen to be there. They're looking around going, well, how good can this be? Nobody else is here. And you, and you put on your show. I put on my show. And I can see them. I'm looking right at them. And I can see them. They're kind of nodding their head. And a song goes by. And you can see them going, you know, that wasn't bad. Let's stay. Let's stay for another one. And at the end, you've got them. But what they've done is, is really courageous, that against all, on their own, they've made a value judgment about what you do that is not based on somebody else's opinion. They just did it on their own, and that is worth its weight in gold. Someone who can do that is someone that you want to you wanna be close to in some way. And whilst, you know... I've done this a bunch. I mean, I also play good gigs. <laughs> They're not all bad. Most of them are good now, but they come up, and I can see that dynamic work and that person almost being put on the spot, you know, because they know the performer is aware of them sitting there. If they get up and leave, I mean, that's half the audience is gone, you know, and they have to make that decision. I just, you know, I'm so grateful for them for, for taking that chance, you know. Well, how I want to be judged, if I'm going to be judged in some way, the best thing I do is, I, is make up songs and get up and sing them. And if, as much as I love my wife, I don't think I want to be judged as a husband. As much as I love my kids, I don't think I do very well being judged as a parent. Maybe I do okay. They've, they've turned out okay, and my wife seems to like me, you know. I may be underselling myself in some way, but what I'm most confident is, you know, walking up on stage and when the first few lines of the, I'll be very uptight before the, I start singing, but as soon as it starts rolling, and I go, oh yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
I know, I know this landscape right now. And it's a, it's a really good feeling. I really, I still love it way more than I should. I'm not, I know. I appreciate you inviting me into your living room and, uh, and chatting with me, David. Hey man, it's just like having a conversation. You know? <laughs> it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank David for inviting me into his kitchen in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about David at davidolney.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.